Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. The 46th president of the United States sat down at the Resolute desk in the Oval Office of the White House of the United States and busied himself signing 15 executive orders on his first day in office. You can read those at whitehouse.gov, presidential actions. Um, When I went there, uh, I was actually looking for the December 31st uh, presidential order related to Uh, declaring January Human Trafficking uh, Awareness Prevention and Intervention Month, um, only to discover that you get a 404 error return for anything prior to yesterday. So there's it's been completely expunged, um, which is just interesting and notable. Right. There is literally uh, a a new administration at every level in place in the executive branch of the U.S. government. You, you, You can't find anything. Uh, that someone might have done two days ago, um, only that which was done yesterday. So that's just curious and interesting, right? So in the days to come, we're going to unpack several of the executive orders that uh, President Biden signed yesterday. We will focus in particular on the ones with which we find ourselves in necessary opposition from a biblical Christian or gospel worldview. Uh, I just think that it is important to recognize today that um, there's an entirely new administration, and that um, is going to result in our need to develop some new relationships. And uh, we're going to have to find people with whom we can candidly speak. They are going to be people with whom we will likely disagree on some very core principles of government and moral living. Um, we are going to have to develop uh, some personal and corporate diplomacy as Christians if if we want to participate in the conversations of the day, if we want a voice in the room, if we want a place at the proverbial table, and we better be prepared to have our viewpoint heard um, and then set aside. Like, you, there's a posture to this when, um, when you didn't win. So elections have consequences, and the table is now set, um, and the invitations now issued by members of a party that is expressly antagonistic to those who operate out of and advocate for pro-life, pro-family, religious liberty, limited government, policies and practices. So you can either throw stones and write screeds or learn to speak peace with honesty and integrity, um, recognizing at every turn that this world is not our home. So as I was praying this morning about how to uh, address this topic, the, the Lord brought to mind the words of the old hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It was written in 1529 by Martin Luther. I want you to think about the context in which Martin Luther lived and the challenges that he faced and uh, and then how he pressed the full force of his life into those concerns um, with deep conviction. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. 
For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen and amen. Peter Kapsner is up next. We'll be right back. Dr. Peter Kapsner, professor, pastor, husband, dad, all-around good guy, substitute radio host when Carmen is not on Mornings with Carmen. Indeed. Hey, welcome back, man. Thanks. Yeah, you are going to be, it's going to be Mornings without Carmen next week from what I understand. All next week. All yes. next week. I, I have too much uh, paid time off and uh, Human Resources has said, you need to go somewhere and do something else for a week. So <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go said, somewhere and do something else for a week so that I can whittle down my... Uh, my paid time off. I love that. Go. Well, you know, the cat's going to be away, Carmen, next week. So, you know, who, if you're going to hand over the show if to Paul and I next up, week. Dude. I know. I know. Yeah. Well, I'll try to break your show yeah. the best I can. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Let's, um, I sent you a story that I read in the Washington Post, and I want to um, and I want to talk about it. It's called A Place to, to Fund Hope, How Proud Boys and Other Fringe Groups Found Refuge on a Christian Fundraising Website. I don't really want to talk too much about the Proud Boys. I do want to talk about how regular Christians... Um, across the country, uh, crowdfund on sites like GiveSendGo.com, um, and how sometimes we as Christians can can find the things that we do uh, infiltrated and co-opted by people who have really fringy uh, motives and things going on. And then I also want to talk about the intern who um, is interviewed in the story. So, Pick it up there, my friend. Yeah, I think it's pretty interesting when you see some of what you just described as these fringe movements. And so often what we see as a, as a commonality in fringe movements is that they don't have a ton of social power. They, they would desire social power. And, and typically speaking, at least in the United States of America, if left alone, uh, fringe groups will just keep practicing fringe things. But I think where the, the concern comes in is as soon as a, some of the groups like this, not just in the United States, but also in other parts of the world, you do see this, is 
that there there gets to be uh, among some of the values of this group a willingness to rise up with some measure of violence should their group values be threatened. And I think that's what we see here that, uh, again, it's pretty common that in the vine for social power and the desire for social power that uh, that when you feel it slipping away, one of the responses you see, not just now, not just with the storming of the Capitol, but you see across cultures and across time, is that people will then use violent means to accomplish social ends. And it happens sort of all the time. Uh, and, and I was uh, thinking back, Carmen, to a time when I was... Uh, uh, accepted into the University of Edinburgh as part of my PhD program in, in about 2004. And it was not long after, of course, the horrific plane crashing into the World Trade Center. It was about three years after that. And people were sort of thinking, what is going on within the Islamic religion that would uh, create the kind of conditions in which at least uh, a one faction or one section of the Islamic religion, not representative of the entire religion, but one section would resort to violence in order to accomplish its social means. And, and as, you, as we studied that, as I looked into that further, uh, when I went into my studies at Edinburgh, it really came down to a perceived sense of, do you have social power or do you not? And I think as Christians right now, and you said it so well at the top of this hour in your opening, is that there is going to be a slipping of social, political, educational power. It's part of, I think, why so many Christians may have decided to support President Trump in 2016, 17, 18, sort of seeing him as God's man, as it were. Some people might use that phrase because they saw him as protective of the social power that Christians may have, but had been slipping, certainly within academia, certainly within uh, popular culture, social media, certainly within in Hollywood, there is a sense in which, which the Christian values that we care so deeply about uh, didn't weren't exerting the same kind of influence in our culture. And as that slips, and as you feel yourself sort of losing the battle, right? One of the things that happens—it's not what everybody does, but this is certainly what's in this story—is you begin to think, "Huh? Well, these people might be able to rise up." These people might be able to protect our position of social power. And I think we need to rethink that a little bit about what it means to be in God's kingdom and, and how we represent light in the world in the midst of, of a society that may not be very, very favorable towards the Christian message any longer. We see that throughout history, Carmen, and any time violence has been used to accomplish social ends, Hmm, that does not end well at the end of the day. And so we have to think about who Jesus was, what did he do, and how did Christianity grow and expand in the midst of most of the some of the most profound persecution that we've seen in those first couple of centuries. I'm reminded um, of a conversation I had a couple of years ago. Um, the book was The End of White Christian America. Nobody liked it when I uh, when I talked about it. Uh, shocking, I know. I can imagine, yeah. But we've uh, we we have arrived um, at at the point where a lot of people are recognizing it's not just basic demography. It's not just that uh, the the share of people in the culture um, is decreasing in terms of of whiteness, um, but the share of of who is in the culture who identify as Christian is shrinking as well. So there's some basic demography at work in terms of the end of white Christian America. But there is a power dynamic at work as well. Yes. And that plays itself out in um, in politics. And so I just think that there's a there's a sobering that needs to happen um, among those of us who are white and who are Christian, recognizing that just because power is lost in the culture, um, that does not mean that we respond by seeking to use violence to reassert a power that we have now lost. 
Yeah, violence, uh, when, when you try to achieve power through violence, it just ends up creating more violence. I, Martin Luther King Jr. is very clear in his uh, theological philosophy and, and the idea being that um, when you uh, meet hate with hate or when you meet violence with violence, whether it's a violence of the spirit or a physical violence, it doesn't yield peace. It yields greater violence. And and I think, again, we're concerned, right, that Christians are concerned, gosh, there's going to be a, a crashing in uh, into our religious freedom of expression. And I think what we need to be thinking about with this, Carmen, is we have the full freedom always to express our religion. We have the full freedom always to express the fact that Jesus is the king of an eternal kingdom and live by that way of life. Now, the implications of that expression might be different in a culture that uh, that maybe isn't so favorable to that any longer. But that doesn't mean we should not be freely expressing it. And certainly we shouldn't try to use violent means to try to create the environment where we can we can express our faith without fear. So many Christians throughout 2000 years have expressed their faith in the midst of fear. And that's happening around our world right now. Why would we be any different today? All right. Peter Kapsner and I got to take a very brief break. When we come back, um, we are going to continue this conversation. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right, continuing my conversation with Peter Kapsner. We are talking about a uh, a story in the Washington Post about the Proud Boys and the GiveSendGo.com um, funding website, which is distinctly Christian. Um, Peter, what in this article uh, stood out to you? Yeah, there was a quote about a third of the way into the article, Carmen, in which a, a pastor of a church called Woodland Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas, Garrett Victory was his name, and he was he was talking. He didn't use this word, but it's a word that you and I have used uh, on many different occasions. And, and the heart of what he's talking about here is the idea of syncretism or the idea of when we blend the values of a society or blend the values of a culture with our faith, meaning that we assume Christianity sort of is like the culture when it so often isn't. And, and if we're not careful, we begin to co-opt the values of the culture and just assume it's Jesus. And he, and, and he said this quote, and it really stuck with me. He said, when we do that, that's how Jesus kind of becomes a mascot for your movement and a blank canvas to project whatever your values or vision is of what's good and what's right. And that's how things get dangerous. And and, and he's talking about that you probably have a commitment to a certain set of values and a certain set of philosophies in your life. And we sort of then slap Jesus on top of it and assume that's who Jesus is. And I, I've been compelled this last week. I've been reading through some different uh, things in Scripture and landing at the end of the day when Jesus is standing in front of the Sanhedrin. And this is coming on the heels of three years of pretty profound misunderstanding, even by his closest followers. The disciples were so often confused. They just thought, well, Jesus is is sort of this new political movement that is going to set up a new political kingdom in the place of Rome, sort of on the seat of David. And we're going to rule through geography and politics and, and all of that, which is why the disciples are saying things like, who gets to sit on your left and who gets to sit on your right? And and they're, they're constantly vying for this idea of social power. And he stands in front of the Sanhedrin. And what does he say? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. And, and I think we have to start there with our idea uh, in the faith. And I know you talk about this kind of thing a lot uh, on the morning show is the idea that Jesus is the king of an entirely different kind of kingdom. And maybe we should stop assuming for a minute that he's operating within the kingdoms of this world, like the political spheres of Washington, D.C., or, or some uh, other political kind uh, of kingdom. Maybe he's operating on an entirely different plane altogether. And so 
we need to hear his words for what they actually are. I, I just think, often, Carmen, that just the, some of the very first words of his Sermon on the Mount, uh, he says something ridiculous like, love your enemies. Like, these are the words of Jesus. This is how life operates in his kingdom. And to love your enemies, it means that you desire the wholeness of another person from a place of tenderhearted affection, even if that person is bringing harm to your life. Now, that doesn't mean you let them run all over you, but it does mean that you never stop desiring the wholeness of everybody. And and so for a person that's really engaged in all this political conversation and adopting the values of one party or the other, saying certainly Black Lives Matter is consistent with the kingdom, certainly President Trump is consistent with the kingdom, maybe we're missing that altogether. I, I would suggest that Jesus would desire the wholeness of both President Trump and Alexander Ocasio-Cortez at the same time. Now, we can argue about the philosophies of politics, but if we ever get to a place of violence of spirit, towards another person, we're probably not necessarily walking in the kingdom at that point. What if we're just funding it? What if we're not the people who are um, actually going and waving a Jesus flag as we um, stomp on uh, the the physical bodies of law enforcement officers and force our way into the Capitol building and call out for the hanging of the vice president who is our brother in Christ? What if we're not those people? Yeah. What if we're just the people giving the money to those people so that they can go and do what it is that they have a sense they're called to do. I mean, right, we're, then we're just, we're part of enabling it. It's, it, it's a, a silly analogy, but I think it holds is the idea that within the body of Christ, we all are supposed to be using our gifts, passions, ideas, opportunities with one another in concert with one another to shine the light of the kingdom and the world around us. So just because you're not necessarily the, the one who's giving the sermon or just because you're not the worship leader, or, uh, you name it, um, when you're part of that organization, participating in any way, shape or form, you're part of it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter uh, whether you're the one actually doing it or some of the people helping support it or fund it, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's one big organization doing something together in that way. Yeah, and there's that body theology that we, we opened the first hour with a conversation about the what the scriptures have to say about unity and the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And when we think about, as Christians, guilt by association, right, I am uh, I want to be found guilty by my association with Jesus. I right. want there to be enough evidence in my life that if put on the stand, I would be convicted of, uh, uh, if charged, I would be convicted of being found to be a Christian, a Christ follower, a person whose life is um, so filled with the person and the spirit of Christ that the two cannot be separated back out. Um, and my concern is that our guilt by association in the culture today as Christians has become over-identified politically, um, and therefore it's hard to—it's actually hard for us to see Jesus, and it's certainly hard for us Mm -hmm. to proclaim Jesus um, as the one who does want wholeness for each and every person. Yeah, I think, Carmen, you said something so important at the end of last hour, just as you're sort of wrapping up and getting ready to start this hour. You talked about being bathed in the world, or in the Word, and your guest at the end of last hour, you said— he was the kind of person that when he speaks, it's almost as if the Word of God just sort of rolls in and through and out of him, just sort of naturally, right? And and I think one of the things that we can do, you, me, Paul, our listeners, all of us, is we do need to stay current on what's going on in the world. But what would it mean to maybe just shut it all down in terms of the news for a day or two, 
uh, take your mind out of the political sphere and just simply read God's word and read Jesus's words as if you were not living in America or living in China or living in Russia or you name the country. Just read his words for what they are and study them and wonder about what life is like in his kingdom. Because then as we do go participate within the kingdoms of this world, politics, education, you name it, we are we are being inhabited by God's word. And I just have a suspicion that his spirit will lead and guide us about then what to say and when to say on behalf of the kingdom in the midst of this, regardless of whether the, the political philosophies allow more or less freedom, whatever it is, bathe yourself in the word. Just once a day, shut it down. Just read his words as, as if it was Jesus himself and not Jesus through the lens of a political figure. Mm. I could say amen to that. Peter, thanks so much, man. We appreciate uh, appreciate you. Appreciate in advance your uh, shepherding the show next week. Looking forward to it, Carmen. Have a great week off. Thanks so much. Uh, Breakpoint is up next. All right, that was just excellent. Uh, if you missed it, you can read, read and listen and get the conversation that uh, John was talking there about with Andy Crouch at breakpoint.org, recovering the lost virtue of patience. Um, wow, what a what a really great and good, timely message for us uh, today. All right, next up, Vanitha Reisner. Um, Vanitha has a very powerful testimony. Um, she is an author. This is not her first book, but it is her first memoir. Um, she's going to be talking with us about walking through fire. What's redemption actually look and feel like? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Licato. God's view and our view of death tend to be different. We see death as the end. God sees it as a beginning. From God's viewpoint, death is not permanent. It is a necessary step for passing from this world to the next. From God's perspective, death It's a small price to pay for the privilege of sitting at his table. The scripture says, flesh and blood cannot have a part in the kingdom of God. This body that can be destroyed must clothe itself with something that can never be destroyed. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 and 53. In other words, we must die for our body to be exchanged for a new one. So, from God's viewpoint, death is not to be dreaded is to be welcomed. This is Max Locator. Reisner is an author. She is uh, she is a speaker. She is a woman after God's own heart. She is a woman acquainted with grief, and she joins us now to talk about uh, not only her life and experience, but her brand new book, which is a memoir, Walking Through Fire, a memoir of loss and redemption. Vanitha, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you um, with us. I think sometimes when we tell people, "Hey, we're going to talk about, um, we're going to talk about grief, we're going to talk about chronic pain, we're going to talk about the bullying we experienced when we were kids," you know, they they might be likely to say, um, "I don't really want to talk about all that." But this is a <laughs> yeah. story of redemption and living in joy. Um, so, can you set us up for a conversation about your story by telling us sort of where you live now? Like, where in your heart space do you live now? Yeah. Um, 
I am so grateful to God for really even the hard things and the good things because he has met me in all of it. So the heart space that I live in now is what God gave me in suffering. He gave me himself was more than he ever took away. So I'm, I'm grateful. And see that, um, the heart of gratitude, uh, if we recognize that that is, that is where we live, even though, even though, so we live with this heart of gratitude, even though that was, um, that was a bit of the refrain that I, um, that I felt kept coming, um, bubbling to the surface in walking through fire. So talk a little bit about this, um, this book, you've written other books, but this is the first time you've kind of unfolded, well, some really significant parts of your own story. So why this and why now? Yeah, why um, Why this? I, in some ways, I've asked myself that question, Carmen, because I've been very vulnerable mm-hmm. in this, probably more than I felt comfortable with, to be honest, at first. But uh, why this is because I want people to see that Christians doubt, they struggle, they ask God why, they ask God, where are you? Uh, there were times that I really leaned completely away from God, didn't want to look at God, was really frustrated that I begged God for things to happen and they didn't happen. But yet God met me even in that. And I feel like a lot of believers are not willing to show the hard side of struggle. And they just say, you know, you count your blessings, you praise God. And and all of those things are incredibly true. And yet when we're in the midst of pain, it's gritty and hard. And sometimes we don't see God. And I feel like I wrote it to remind myself that when it looks dark, God is still there. I think we look, when we look in the rearview mirror, we can see, oh my gosh, God did all those things. But when we're in the midst, we just need to remind ourselves, God is using us and God is with us. And this suffering is going to end. Those are the three things that I feel like God keeps telling me, that's what you need in suffering. And I wrote this book so that other people who feel like Life is dark and God has abandoned them to say to see that there are people that feel that way in the midst of it, just like they do. But then they realize that God is holding them the whole time. My guest is Vanitha Reisner. You can find her um, online at Vanitha.com. You can also follow her on uh, on all the socials. We're talking today about her newest book. It's a memoir, Walking Through the Fire. Um, Vanitha, I think we are tempted as Christians to think that, you know, Johnny Erickson Tata is really the only person who has to do this. Like, right, no, no, none of the rest of us have to do this. Like, right, she, she, you know, God called her. It's a special calling on her life. We love her. Um, we, we have talked with her frequently. I consider her, you know, not only a sister in Christ, but a genuine friend. Um, and we just like to point to, to Johnny and say, well, that's, that's, you know, thank God for her. Mm. Okay. And, and yes, thank God for her. But, but grace does not protect us from suffering. Can you talk about that? The expectation that Christians should have that suffering is a part, a real part of real life? Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you asked that, Carmen, because that was a real struggle I had. Um, after I came to Christ, I really thought that my life was going to be perfect if I prayed and said the right stuff and was faithful. And, you know, suffering in my life kind of came in wave after wave. I lost a son, was diagnosed with something that will eventually potentially lead to quadriplegia. My husband left. 
And I felt like this is not the life that I signed up for. And this is Mm -hmm. not the life that I was promised, really felt that I was promised. And yet God kind of showed me, I give you a lot more in suffering than you realize. Like suffering is a gift in that I think I've known a lot of people who've walked away from faith or a few at least. And I would say that very few of them met God in the fire. Very few of them knew what it was like to completely depend on God because they had nothing else. Because when you experience God that way, the way Johnny has, God is more real to you than your best friend. Mm -hmm. He is there. Whereas if you don't need God that desperately, then you don't experience him that way. That's just part of the package that comes with suffering. And Johnny says, you know, suffering is a gift wrapped in black. And that's what it is. But it is an incredible gift but it doesn't come with good wrapping. Sometimes I just want to, you know, let what you say settle in on us for a moment without running over it with another question. Um, suffering is redemptive, mm. but, but, you know, we really want, we really try really hard to avoid it um, at all costs. One of the themes that continues to um, arise in your book um, is the theme of forgiveness. And so let's take a very brief break. And when Vanitha Reisner and I return, we're going to talk more about her memoir, Walking Through the Fire. And I'm going to ask her um, about forgiveness. What, um, why is forgiveness important as we journey through suffering um, and into a life of genuine redemption? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. You've walked me through fire. Continuing my conversation with Vanitha Reisner. She is the author, among other things, of Walking Through the Fire. Um, you can find her at vanitha.com. Vanitha, let's talk about the role that forgiveness plays. It's um, certainly a key theme throughout the book. Um, talk with us about the role of forgiveness. Yeah. Well, honestly, forgiveness, besides accepting Christ, is probably the most life changing thing I've ever done. Uh, but it's also the hardest. I I would say the first step of forgiveness feels like death. And it still does to me. Like, I don't want to forgive people. But for me, forgiving my my ex-husband who left our family really changed me because I realized I could live bitter. And I think it's really easy to do that, to kind of roll over in your mind all the things that somebody has done to you. But you realize that's poison. And that it infiltrates so much of your life and it, it it's written on your face and you can't let it go. And there's big things like that, that God has really delivered me from being bitter from. But Carmen, it's often the everyday things that God keeps telling me, you need to let go of this. Like the person who forgets my birthday when I got them a great present. I mean, just very little things are really easy to hold on to, kind of to bear a grudge. I had a really hard relationship with my in-laws for a while. And God really showed me my own sin and how I would rehearse all the negative things they ever said to me till that's all I could think about. And God kind of called me to forgive them. And I didn't want to at first. And then when I did, I was just sort of reading the Bible and sense that God was like, how can you hold this against them and not love them given all that I've done for you? And so I, I just asked God to help me forgive them. And it transformed my relationship with them. And I've seen, so in big things, the doctor who took my son off his medicine and he died, 
forgiving him for that mistake to the very everyday things, I feel like I don't want to do it at first, but then when I let it go, this flood of Christ power comes through me. And um, just one little analogy that I've been thinking about um, is, you know, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And the vine, the branches attach to the vine at a place of wounding. That's how they attach. That's the way you graft a branch in. And it really is this wounding that God calls us to forgive that enables God's power to just flood through us. And I would say that's when I felt God's power in my life is when I've been able to forgive little things and big things. So that is so radically countercultural. You know, we we live in a culture where, you know, everyone's offended by everything. Um, blame is quick to be cast. Uh, getting even or, you know, suing those who have who have wronged me. Um, we live in a culture that is not a culture of forgiveness. And so for Christians to extend to others that which we have received is uh, is not only righteous, it, it's genuinely countercultural. It's genuinely a demonstration of the gospel to other people in addition to doing this really critical work inside of us. I mean, it's a huge part of sanctification that we would be able Amen. to forgive others as we have been forgiven. We pray it in the Lord's Prayer, but I don't think we mean it when we pray it in the way in which you are expressing. I mean, I, I just, I think that you're your testimony to the power and importance of forgiveness as a part of the suffering that we experience in this life and framing it as suffering as opposed to framing it as, um, you know, other uh, other people have sinned against me and I'm going to hold those sins against them um, is, I mean, all of it, I just think is really critical for helping us to see ourselves. It, it really did change me. And I think I, I agree, like I read it in the Lord's Prayer before, but I didn't really understand one, what it meant, and two, that every single command that God gives us is for our good. There's not a single one that's not for our good. And this is radically for our good because it really does change us. And um, one thing a friend of mine said to me when I was figuring out just forgiveness with my, um, my ex-husband, she said to me, we are never more like Christ than when we are willing to suffer for the sins of others. And that's what forgiveness really is in some ways, is being willing to suffer for the sins of others. And that reoriented my mind to the high calling of forgiveness and why that's important and why God uses it. And that it's not overlooking, it's not saying it does, it's not important because Christ didn't overlook our sins or say they weren't important. He said, they're so important, I have to die because you can't make up for them. And so acknowledging that, we're not saying it's a, a little thing to forgive people, but we're saying you can't make up for it. So God is calling me to forgive you. And that reframed it for me in a pretty powerful way. Wow. Okay. I want to be able to give attribution to the friend. Um, we are never more like Christ than when we are willing to suffer for the sins of another. That yeah. is, um Yeah. Vanitha's friend. That's how I'm going to attribute the quote. It's so yeah, good. Yeah, it's, it's so Raven. good. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Um, Vanitha, um, we got a couple of minutes left together today. Um, we we all know a lot of people who are in isolation. They're suffering many things right now. They're struggling. Um, maybe give us a couple of things not to say to them. 
I would say, do not say at least. That is one word that, um, that really hurts people when you say, at least it's not this, at least it's not that. Um, just sit there. Uh, don't ask prying questions. I, it's really hard when people say exactly what happened. Uh, sometimes we want to know, but we need to just let that go. And I would say unsolicited advice is really hard to hear. When, if we need, if we want advice, we can, we'll ask for it. But to, to get it unsolicited is not ever welcome. All right. That's so good. I have a, I have a friend, um, you know, right now with whom I'm, I'm trying to sit, I'm trying to be better behaved than the friends of Job. Um, Mm. And the sitting in silence part, uh, you know, because I want to help, I want her to, I want her to be in a different place than she is right now. But just sitting and being patient and allowing her to process through and see the things that God's showing her and allow him to uh, minister to her and just sit there and be present while it, you know, while it happens, recognizing that it takes real time for that to happen. Mm -hmm. The aha moments she has come to on her own um, are extraordinary. I would have never, I would have never as her friend been able to, you know, pull back the curtain or the dark fabric and, you know, and, and reveal those points of light. But just sitting there in silence with her while she is processing through it has led to some, some aha moments for me, um, you know, as she has discovered the faithfulness of God to her in the midst of her suffering. Um, it is, it is really extraordinary. It is. I so appreciate you sharing that. One thing that I did with the woman in my small group who I love, who has ALS, we in our small group were struggling, like, what do we do here? I mean, this is so hard. And what we did was we ended up lamenting through a psalm. And mm. we read the psalm, and then we cried out with our own words, like, God, where are you? Like, we were able to be raw and real of our questions to God. And then we were able to make our request to God. And then Psalms often end with praise, and it just felt like we could remind ourselves of the truths of God, but it didn't feel trite, because I feel like if we just remind people of the truths of God, it feels trite, honestly. But if we just lament and say, this is awful, sometimes they leave with no hope. So I found that if we do speak, lamenting through a psalm is incredible. It was one of the most powerful things I've done, and I only I only did it like probably a few months ago for the first time. And I thought, this is the way I want to sit. If a group of us are with a friend, I want to do this every time because there was a power in that that I cannot even describe. Um, I am uh, being reminded of conversations that we have had with KJ Ramsey. If you're listening right now and you want to go back and grab some additional conversations related to what we're talking about today, conversations with Mark Rogop about um, rediscovering lament, um, conversations uh, about the double blessing with Mark Batterson, Deep Mercy, which was a conversation um, that we had uh, as well. Um, all, all, the, you are um, you are ringing a bell for me on so many points. So thank you so very much. Um, Vanitha Reisner is the author. You can find her online at Vanitha.com. The book is Walking Through the Fire. Vanitha, thank you so much um, for your witness, your testimony, and your willingness to share um, these really these very intimate things about your own story that um, that we might have hope as well. Oh, well, this was wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. That's Vanitha Reisner. We'll be right back.
Okay, I hope you were as blessed by that conversation as I was. Um, Let's be praying today for people who are struggling. Um, Know that if you are struggling, um, you're in my thoughts and prayers as well. Um, I don't say that lightly. That's not a trite truth. That is an honest confession. Uh, So let's be honest with one another. Let's be praying for one another. Let's be building one another up. Let's be rehearsing blessings and not curses to one another today. As you go forth um, out there into the world that God so loves, just recognize that people are hurting. A lot of people are really hurting. Um, You may be among them. Um, Know that God is good. His grace is sufficient. Um, He is present. He is willing. He is willing to hold you and uphold you with his right hand. Um, Crawl into his everlasting arms uh, as you need to today and find, uh, find his grace. It's available. God loves you. You are his and he is good. All right, let's meet right back here tomorrow. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.